Good morning. Wow, there's a lot of you out there. Can you see me with all this? Yeah, it's good to be with you. Slopperfly. Answer to all your marriage issues. That means we don't really need a message on marriage, don't we? Well, you do. I just want to let you know that if you have children in here, it, it will get a little PG-13-ish today because uh, we can't address marriage without talking about certain sensitive issues. Uh, so just be aware, uh, please. Um, let me pray before we dive into this, if you wouldn't. Ah, Lord, I, I just thank you so much for your love for us, for your goodness. The plans that you have for us are good. Um, that you have plans for our marriages. And I just pray for this morning, Lord, that as we look at your word and what you say <clears throat> about marriage, Lord, that you would uh, just marinate every word in your grace, Lord. That you would speak into our hearts and um, that you would show us, Lord, what you intended for marriages to be. Thank you for your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love is a battlefield. Marriages are often battlefields, aren't they? Who here is married, if you wouldn't mind identifying yourself? All right. Now, who in here, married or not married, in case you will get married, who is hoping for a happy marriage? That's it? So many of you are content with... There must be a lot of hopelessness. A good thing we're talking about this today. You know, maybe we should have called this message, the message is titled The Battle for Marriage. It's part of our series called All is Not Fair in Love and War. Fortunately, a lot of marriages are struggling because we feel like all is fair in love and war when it isn't. Maybe we should have titled this message the, not the battle for marriage, but the battles in marriage because that's often how it feels, doesn't it? I know because my marriage sometimes does. And, uh, you know, we all, we, so many of us said we want a happy marriage. Why is it if we all want that, that so few of us experience that? You know, a lot of, I in, interact with a lot of you on, on life issues, and usually when someone comes to talk about their marriage, it's not to tell me how great it is going. There's a lot of pain out there in marriages, maybe in your marriage. There's failed marriages, past marriages, future marriages, and I just want to, preface everything I'm going to say today with this, that, um, and this has been my prayer all week in preparing for today, that this is not a Sunday morning of finger pointing and assigning blame for past mistakes or failed marriages or relationships. What I want to look at this morning is God's purpose for marriage, his intent for marriage. And when I went through seminary and, and you know, they teach you how to preach and, and how to structure a message and so on. And they always tell you, don't give, don't give the end away in the beginning. You know, keep, them, keep their attention so they listen to you through the end. But you know what? I'm going to give it away today. The, the, the end of this message, the point, the destination of this morning is that in God there's hope for marriage. There's hope for marriages. There's hope for your marriage, no matter where you are right now. There's hope for maybe a future marriage that you hope to have. Marriages are supposed to be a taste of heaven. Sounds ironic, doesn't it? But we're going to show you that marriages were intended by God to be a taste of heaven. So 
So let's dive into this together. Marriages are hard and they can be awesome. Marriages are often destructive when they can be fulfilling. They're often very painful when they can be and should be very healing. I think the, the state of marriage is actually so bad that we don't expect marriages to succeed anymore, do we? Over half of all marriages starting today will end up in divorce. And that, that percentage is represented here among us too. Again, there's no judgment there, but that's a reality we live in. We don't expect marriages to, to succeed anymore. When my wife and I got married, and I'm, I know I've shared this before, but um, we, we, you know, in Germany you get married in the town hall. The church is just a, a symbolic ceremony. They don't have the authority to marry you. So you go to the town hall, and my mayor married us and gave us some very inspirational words uh, with us on our way. And, and that was this. He said, well, Christian and Sandrine, I hope you can make this uh, work for as long as possible. That's, that's what he told us. I was like, gee, thanks for the vote of confidence. Uh, we're going to do our best. That's what he told us. We don't expect marriages to succeed anymore. And all of us that have been married or are married know that it's hard. It's not easy. And it takes a lot of work. When my wife and I got married, she, she came from a very dysfunctional family where she had seen a horrible example of marriage. And she knew Marriage would be hard and would require commitment and a lot of work. And she made me commit to uh, never considering divorce as an option. Because she had gone through a divorce uh, with her parents and she just said, Christian, we just can never even consider it. We've got to, no matter how bad it gets, we're never going to consider it, never discuss it. I was like, okay, I can do that. And we never have. Considered murder. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure she's considered torture and has made plans to that end. But, but uh, by God's grace, we're still, uh, we're still here and together. But as I look at the state of marriage, you know, when something's broken, what do you try to do? You try and figure out what was it supposed to be and how can it be fixed? And that's what I hope today can help us do. That we go back to the source of who thought it up and what on earth was he thinking? Actually, what in heaven was he thinking? Some, some people want to use a different location in that sentence. But uh, what was he thinking? And how can we get back to that? How can we rediscover God's purpose for marriages? And that's what I will try and help us, help us do this morning. And there's three questions that I would like to start exploring, knowing that, that really exploring this would take weeks and weeks and weeks. And we don't have this. We'll, we'll look at marriage this today, and then we'll look at sexuality next Sunday, and then we have our marriage conference. By the way, if you haven't signed up yet, do it. So we have a, a table out in the lobby. It's uh, two weekends from this weekend, Friday, Saturday. Um, rock your marriage. Please sign up and, and get your tickets. Um, but the three questions that I want to start exploring with you is why marriage? Why? What did God have in mind with this? Why marriage? Who in marriage? Uh, no, I won't tell you who to marry. But uh, anyway, we'll look at who and then we'll look at how. How is this supposed to work? And we're going to solve all of these in all their depth today. No. Why? Let's start with why. Some people say, well, 
What, a, what kind of question is that? I think in our day and age, it's a very legitimate question because the majority of people question the legitimacy of marriage. Most young people, I, I got a study, uh, found a study by Rutgers University, so State University in New Jersey. They, they didn't consider any spiritual aspects to marriage or living together. The study was on the, the discrepancy between uh, marriage and cohabitation. That's a big word for German, uh, meaning just living together. And they looked at the effects, and what they came up with is that 70% of young people, um, and by the way, I found out in these statistics that I don't qualify in the young people category anymore, which was rather crushing, but here we go. 70% of young people today consider cohabitation or just living together as a great alternative to being married. And so there's different categories of that. Some say it's a complete uh, substitute for marriage. Others, a lot of them, the majority actually, sees this as a good trial run for marriage. And it makes rationally, it makes great sense. You try this, you live together, you see how this works before you fully commit for life. Now here's the kicker. So they didn't consider any spiritual, biblical input or any religious input at all. But what they found in their research in studying couples that live together and then get married, what they found is that there, that the goal of figuring this out so that it then works better in marriage doesn't work at all. They said a disproportionate number of people who live together to make marriage work better ended up in divorce. And actually much more, the, the number is, is disproportionately higher than people that have never lived together before and got married. Are you following me? So people who... who lived together before they got married, have a dramatically higher uh, percentage chance of having a failed marriage, which is very interesting because it, it does line up with what God says about marriage and, the, and the, the parameters for it. You know, some people, when I discuss this with them, say, well, marriage is a modern idea. During the times of, of the Bible, marriage wasn't an issue. People just lived together and were committed. That's not true. That's just historically not true. There was an institution of marriage that, that the Bible, that Jesus in his lifetime, placed high value and emphasis on. We have one incident where Jesus, it's in John 3, I believe, John 3 or 4, where he meets a Samaritan woman at a well and discusses life with her. And the issue of her husband comes up and she says, well, I'm, I'm actually not married. And Jesus, you know, being God, it's really not fair, knowing everything and all. He says, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, You've been married five times and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Now he, I'm not talking about judgment. He's just saying, yeah, that's the truth, implying very clearly that there was a difference between living together and actually being married and there being an institution, even back then, an organized way uh, for marriage. And it's one that is very, very important and dear to God. So why marriage? Think to, to get to the bottom of that, we have to go to the very beginning and I want to take you to Genesis chapter 2, um, right at the end of the creation account. So God has, has already created Adam, and that's where we'll pick it up. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, So the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Ladies, stay in your seat. I will address the word helper. Um, Let's skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. We like to do that. And while he was sleeping, 
He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And I'll, I'll read two more verses. I don't think they'll be on the screen. Um, but just follow along. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Do you know, by the way, why God used Adam's rib? You don't? I do. You know what to tell you? Yeah. All right. So God came to Adam back then and said, Adam, listen, I'm, I'm thinking of making a partner for you, and she's going to be gorgeous. She's going to be smart. She's going to care for you and all that. And, and Adam's going to kind of suspect, and like, well, God, what's that going to cost me? God says, well, an arm and a leg. And Adam goes, well, what can I get for a rib? Huh? <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, that is not found in Scripture. That was revealed to me at another time. So, what's really interesting is that before this, before this incident, God says, I've created man in my image. I know I talk about that a lot, and I do because it's important. It speaks to the very nature of our purpose. God created Adam and Eve, both the man and the woman, in his image, both reflecting parts of the image of God that are very specific. And what God is saying here, when he said, man, is, it's not good for man to be alone, what he's saying is, man, he does not represent the community that I have as God. A few weeks ago, David spoke on the Trinity and, and talked about the community that God has with him himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we learn in Scripture. And, and what God said when he looked at Adam is, Adam's alone. That does not reflect my nature as a God of community. And so he created Eve and brought them together as one flesh. And, and that, again, is very interesting. He took it. So Adam says, she's now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this reason... It says a man will leave his father and mother and will pursue a woman to marry so that they can become one flesh again. So we're saying because the woman was taken out of Adam, they were one flesh. He took her out and made her so that they, their purpose is to become one flesh again, to come back to their original design. That's the reason why men go out and pursue a woman to spend life with. It's part of the image that God has created uh, within us of him. Here's the deal. I believe scripture teaches us that marriage, the union between a man and a woman, is the fullest and most complete expression of God's triune image and identity on this earth. Say that again. Marriage in God's design is the fullest expression and image of who God is to the world around us. It doesn't mean if you're single and, and might be single for your whole life that you can't be the image of God. You can. But God has chosen the, 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 the institution of marriage to reveal parts of his character that can only be revealed there. See, in the Trinity... 
between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I recently saw a message by Matt Chandler. He's a pastor of uh, Village Church in Dallas. Great guy to get podcasts from, by the way. He, he taught on the Trinity. And, and Dave touched on it. I just want to quickly see how this relates to marriage. So in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus in us if we have received him, the Holy Spirit will always point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's never about himself. He's always pointing us to Jesus, making us more like Jesus, and referring to him, lifting up Jesus. Jesus will always refer to the Father as we read the gospel. Whenever Jesus is questioned and challenged, he's always said, it's not me, it's about the Father. His whole ministry was about reconciling us to the Father. The Father says, I always work through the Spirit. The Spirit works. So the Spirit points to Jesus. Jesus points to the Father. The Father points to the Spirit. There's a, a mutual submission and lifting up that is supposed to be reflected in our marriage relationships. That's why Ephesians 5, 1, and we'll go there later in a little more detail, says, submit to one another in marriage. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit constantly submit to each other and lift each other up. God's nature is supposed to be most fully expressed on this earth in our marriage relationships. In John 17, John, uh, Jesus prays for the disciples, for his followers, and he, he talks about their unity and how important their unity is to represent God. And he says, may they be one just as you and I, Father, as you and I are one, may they be one. So this is supposed to be true in our relationships as followers of Jesus. How much more is that supposed to be true in the most intimate relationship that exists on this planet between a husband and a wife? That just as far Jesus and the Father were one, in marriage we're supposed to be one in a way that tells the world about who God is and his nature. And within marriage, the most complete picture and act of that is sexuality. And that's why, scripturally, sexuality belongs within the confines of marriage. Next Sunday, we'll have a whole message on sexuality, and I encourage you uh, to come. Dave will talk, and I, I let him do that. That's his favorite topic. But um, <laughs> as you well know. So let me just, but let me touch on that. Sexuality is so important, not just to you men, but to God. And sexuality, as well as marriage, has so been twisted in our society. Sexuality is actually created by God, given to us as a gift, and it's an, an incredibly powerful illustration of spiritual truth. See, and I know some of you are already cringing. How can something as dirty as sex be, be a, a, a symbol, symbolic of spiritual truth? But it is because it isn't dirty. We've just made it dirty. <laughs> so think of, think of spiritual birth, which is really what God is interested in. Spiritual life. How do we receive spiritual life? We receive it by receiving Jesus. We receive Jesus into our life. The scripture actually talks about that Jesus comes when we receive him and he deposits a seed of life in us. So now let, let's go to husband and wife. How is life created in that relationship? It's by a woman making herself completely vulnerable, opening herself up and receiving her husband, who, and it's going to get technical in PG-13 here, who deposits a seed of life that will lead to physical life. 
It's a powerful illustration of what happens spiritually in our lives. It is sacred to God. And that's why he's given us guidelines of wh who uses it and where. And we have so corrupted it and it's so important to God because by, by misusing it, by corrupting it, we misrepresent the very nature of who he is. See, giving us guidelines for marriage and sexuality is not because God doesn't want us to have fun. He gives them to us because he knows we can only truly enjoy them within the, the confines of his creation design. And he wants us to, to use them and to, to enjoy them and experience them in the fullness of what he's created it for. But it can only happen in that framework. Let's move to the topic of, no, not a very smooth transition, the topic of divorce. Big issue. I addressed it up front. We can't talk about marriage without talking about divorce. I know that, that many of you have experienced it. Some, some might. Some might be in the middle of that. And let me just say again, today is not about pointing fingers. It's not about assigning blame. It's about what does God say and what could it be? And God says in Malachi that he hates divorce. Now let me say clearly, he hates the act of divorce. He hates what it represents. He loves the divorcee. <laughs> if you've been divorced, if, if you've had a marriage that has failed, there's no condemnation. There's only God's promise of love, of grace, of forgiveness, and of renewal. <laughs> and the promise of there is something better. But he hates what divorce represents because it misrepresents him. See, he is faithful and true and full of grace and full of forgiveness and full of new life. And divorce misrepresents that. It misrepresents the nature of God. That's why he hates it. It's um, actually addressed, Jesus addresses the issue of divorce in Matthew 19. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, constantly tried to trip him up, up with difficult questions. And one time they addressed divorce. It was obviously already a hot topic back then. Matthew 19, they come up to him in verse 3. Actually, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you. I, gotta, I have so much to say. I've got to cram it in here. So they asked him, what about divorce? And he goes, well, marriage is supposed to be for life. Don't divorce. And, and then they challenge him, say, well, but then if you say that, then why did Moses give us the law to give uh, our wives a certificate of divorce if we divorce them? He says, well, he did that because he knew your hearts were hard. He knew you would do it anyway. So he gave you a way to do it in a way that's safe and minimizes the, the, the damage and the negative effects of it. But it wasn't part of God's design and purpose for you. He did it because he knew you would do it anyways. And then you know what his disciples say? I love this. His disciples, the guys that have been following him all this time, Peter, I imagine Peter uh, doesn't say who it is, but his disciples come up and say, well, Jesus, if that's true, literally they say, if I can't divorce my wife for any or, or, or no reason, like burning potatoes or whatever, then, then why should I even get married? Then I shouldn't get married at all. That was their attitude. <laughs> if I can't quit this on a whim, then I shouldn't get into this at all. And that's what Jesus says. Guys, you get it so wrong. This is what God's design is. He wants you to represent him in this relationship. And God doesn't quit. He forgives and he's faithful. That's his, his purpose. That's his ideal for marriage. Marriage is supposed to reflect 
the truth about God's character, his faithfulness, his selflessness, his forgiving nature, and that he's always true to his covenants. And God wants marriage, your marriage and my marriage, to reflect that. Now, could you possibly imagine your marriage with your spouse being all about you and not about him or her? Your spouse having your best interest at heart, serving you, giving you grace, loving you unconditionally. Can you imagine the security, the comfort that would come from that? And the freedom for you to do the same? That's God's design and wish for your marriage. I don't have to do a Bible study on that anymore. That is God's wish and purpose for your marriage. And that leads us inevitably to the question of who. Who in marriage? It flows right out of God's design for marriage. In Genesis, we, we see, if we look at the creation account, that all three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were part of the creation process, of the life-giving aspect of creation. And that life-giving aspect is, is reflected in our marriages. There is no, if you know of another way, tell me, but there is no other way to create new physical life than the union between a man and a woman. There is no other way. I guess we can do it in the laboratory now, but you still need <laughs> apart from the man and apart from the woman. It's the only way that that works. And we at K2 believe that marriage is for a man and for a woman. And I want to take a few minutes to, to address some of you. And I know this is going to be, it's going to be hard for me because I know it's going to be painful for you. I know that we have a, a good number of, of, of people in our faith community who come faithfully and regularly who are gay. You feel homosexual, maybe you live it. And I want to take a minute to ask you for forgiveness in the name of this church and the evangelical church in general for the judgment that you have received for the ridicule and the lack of grace and love. It is wrong. It is sin. And I want to ask you for forgiveness. I couldn't be more glad that you are here and that you are here to pursue Jesus. And we want to be a church that accepts anybody to walk through these doors, no matter where they are at in their life, no matter what relationship they're in, no matter what they believe, to come here and pursue Jesus. And if, and if you have a problem with that, then this probably is not a church for you. And I just want to tell you that you are not alone in a struggle with your feelings and, and, and somehow matching, matching that up with, with your love for God and, and what the Bible seems to say. Sometimes when I, when I speak to, to gay friends here, they say, it's just not fair for me to have to deny this. And you know, I... I 
Maybe that's not fair. But I, uh, I saw an interview with Rick Warren a couple of years ago before he prayed at the inauguration of President Obama. And he was addressed, challenged with that very question. Because they as a church say, we believe that marriage is for man and woman, that sexuality is for a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. And, and he was confronted with that question, is it, is it fair for people to deny their feelings like that? And this is what he said, and I loved it, and you men will be able to identify with this. He said, you know, in my nature, he said, me just as a man, I want to sleep with every beautiful woman I see. But God's word tells me it's not good for me, and every reasonable person will tell me that's not good for me, for my wife, for my marriage, for my family, for my church. It wouldn't be good for me. It's not what God wants for me. And he said, I have to wrestle with that all my life, with these feelings that I have in my heart and with what I know the Bible says about it. You're not alone in your struggle. It's just a different one. We all have to line up what we feel and what's in our heart and with our pursuit of Jesus. And I just want you, if you're here and you're gay, I just... I just want to invite you to stay here and pursue Jesus. And I make the commitment, we make the commitment as a church to pursue Jesus with you. And all of you, no matter what the struggles are. But I am convinced that if we pursue Jesus, he will lead us. He will lead us into truth and he will lead us into life. And he never asks us for anything without giving us the freedom and the strength to do it. And that's his promise to you and to me. So I'm glad you're here. Welcome at K2. That brings us to the last question. I have very unsmooth transitions today. And that's the question of how. And I imagine that's the question most of us have. How, how is this supposed to work? I've already tried once or twice or more and it hasn't worked. I'm in one now that isn't working. And, and all of us are in one that isn't working at some time or another. How is this supposed to work? And I have uh, exactly five minutes left, so let's solve this. Um, well, let's begin to. How is this supposed to work? Here's one thing that I found in my study in the last couple of weeks on, in this. That, that God deals with us. And he wants us to deal with each other in marriage in the context of covenants. See, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling and, and I marry couples and, and it's a huge responsibility that I feel. And, and when we come to the point in the marriage when I've given my 45-minute sermon and, and I don't do that at weddings. But, uh, so we get to the point, in, what do you do when you actually marry people? What do they do to each other? They give each other a? Well, before that. Before the kiss, they give each other a? A ring? Okay, it's something else. Yes, a vow, a promise, okay? You make, a, you make a promise. Now, the very nature, thank you. <laughs> Welcome to first grade. The, the very nature of a promise is you promise, you say, I'm, I'm going to do my best to do this. That's a promise. I'm going to do my best to do this. And you know what? Our best is never good enough. It's never good enough. That's why marriages are so hard. <laughs> That's why they fail. Because we're not good enough to meet the promise we're making. That's why God doesn't deal only in promises. He makes promises, but they're conditional. God's promises are always conditional. His covenants are not. 
And he deals with you and me in the covenant. He dealt with Adam with a covenant. And then he dealt with Abraham with a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham. says, Abraham, I will bless you. I will. There was no if and when you do this. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation through the son that Sarah is going to give you. And then Sarah turned 83. And Abraham, understandably, got a little antsy. And, um, and so he said, you know what? I'm going to sleep with my wife's maid. And she had a baby boy. He broke the covenant that he had made with God. But you know, the nature of a covenant is when God makes a covenant, it's not conditional and he keeps it. Even though Adam broke it, he said, you know what, Adam, I'm going to be faithful to what my covenant was with you and I'm going to give the blessing that I promised the other son. I'm going to give it to Ishmael and I'm still going to give you the son I promised you and I'm still going to give him the same blessing. See, a covenant is, is fundamentally different from a promise or a contract. A contract is an exchange of ideas or agreements, all right? A covenant, by nature, is an exchange of lives. It's an exchange of lives where two parties say, I'm giving all of myself to you, and the other person says the same, I'm giving all of myself to you. That's what God did with Abraham, uh, with Adam also. He said, Adam, I'm giving all of myself to you. And you give all of yourself to me. And then Adam broke that. And God was true to his covenant. See, this is the nature of God. When we break the covenant, he is faithful to his. And he even goes through the pain of fixing the covenant that we've already broken. That's what he did with Adam over the next 2,000 years. He said, just hold on, I'm fixing this, I'm fixing this. And he brought Jesus and he fixed it. Remember, a covenant, an exchange of lives. And God gave his life again on the cross so that you and I can again be in that covenant relationship with him where he is faithful and where he is true no matter what we do. That's his purpose for marriage. That's how it's supposed to work. Others break it, we keep it. Now, let me, make, let me take a little side note here. There's marriages that are unsafe and where there is abuse. And God doesn't ask you to endure abuse and violence. There's got, something's got to be fixed there. But God's idea for marriage is two people completely committed to him, having a covenant relationship with him first so that they can have a covenant relationship with each other that reflects him. And that is fleshed out in Ephesians 5. I want to encourage you, last year, pretty much exactly a year ago, I think it was February 10th last year, I spoke on this passage in detail, Ephesians 5, 21 following, on, on how is this supposed to be fleshed out, this submission for the wife and for the man. And you can go on our website in the archives and, and watch it. And I would encourage you uh, to do that. But this is briefly what Ephesians 5 tells us. It tells us to submit to each other. This is how this covenant is fleshed out. We submit to each other, meaning I give my life to you, you give your life to me. That's why Ephesians actually talks about when you get married, you don't belong to yourself anymore, you belong to your spouse. Husband, you don't belong to yourself anymore, you belong to your wife. And wife, you don't belong to yourself, you belong to him. It's mutual giving of our lives. And then God says in, in Ephesians, this is husbands, how you're supposed to submit to your wife. This is how this is going to work. You're going to be like Jesus. That's what he says. Lead your wife and your family the way Jesus leads the church and how he led his disciples. That's all. Okay. That means giving up your rights, 
giving and serving sacrificially and giving your life away. Again, covenant, giving your life away. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't lead by putting his feet up, say, Peter, remote control, James, chips, John, beer, here. That's not how Jesus led. He didn't. You know what he did? He put on the dress of a servant. He went on his knees and peeled out the dirt between their toes. And then the next day, he gave his life for them. Men, that's our responsibility. That's our leading. That's our serving, as Jesus did. Women, it tells you in this Ephesians passage to submit by respecting your husbands. It's very hard to do with men that act like boys. I know. It's very hard to see what I think God is doing in telling us men to lead and give up like Jesus and women to respect your husbands. He's asking us to do what comes most unnatural to us. And let me just, let me just reveal something to you, ladies, if you're married or not. It, it is very hard and unnatural for men to put down their own interests and serve you selflessly. It's very difficult if you haven't noticed yet. It doesn't come natural. It is hard. The whole sitting down on the couch and listening for quality time is hard. We don't enjoy it as much as you do. It's hard. And guys, I know from my wife, respecting us is really hard because we do act like boys and we like Xbox and sports and we act like little kids. See, what I think God is doing by asking this of us, you know what he's showing us? He says, you can't do it. You cannot do it unless you're in a covenant relationship with me. You cannot live a functional covenant relationship with your spouse unless you have a covenant relationship with me. Because only if you have a covenant relationship with me can you reflect that to the world. We can't do it, but he can in you and in me. That's what he's inviting you into. And this is, this is what God is telling you. He says, husbands, I love your wife more than you could ever imagine. You're like, what? She's my wife. <laughs> well, I love her more than you can ever imagine. And you are my primary agent of love to her. And she receives my love by you giving up your self-interest and serving her and loving her. And then he says to the wife, says, wife, I love your husband more than you can ever imagine. And I've chosen you to be my agent of love to him. That's my mission for you to respect him because that's how I've created him to receive it. And I want to do that through you. That's all. That's all we got to do. We can only do it through him. It cannot be done apart from Jesus. Because to do that, we have got to be set free from it being about ourselves. We have got to be set free from our selfishness. We have got to be set free to give and not to take. We have got to be set free to forgive and not to harbor. But if we allow that, if we allow Jesus to give us that freedom, the freedom that comes from a covenant with him that is unconditional, then we have him inside to give it to our spouse. 
and then it can, and the band can come up, and then it can, and it will become the taste of heaven that it's supposed to be. Because in heaven, in eternity, we as followers of Jesus are going to be in an eternal marriage with Jesus. We are his bride. And that's what he's preparing us for. And he wants us to taste it here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, that was hard. Your word isn't always easy. And truth isn't always easy. But God, I thank you that your word, when it speaks truth, that it is drenched and soaked and dripping with grace and love. And Lord, I ask for forgiveness if I didn't represent your grace and love well this morning. Lord, I just pray that you'll fix that. <laughs> that your grace would touch our hearts. That your grace would reach the parts of our heart when it comes to our marriages and our sexuality and our relationships where we feel guilt, where we feel accusation. Lord, that you would set it free. That you would set us free to be the partners that you've created us to be. That you would set us free to be the husbands that you call us to be. That you would set the women free to be the wives to, that you set, want them to be. Lord, and that you set us free to live relationships and sexuality in a way that, that you intended it to. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your love and grace in my life. In Jesus' name.